holidays came and went and pandemic fatigue is still very much real. Despite all the warnings from government officials, expert advice, and rising COVID-19 case numbers, people are still taking the risk to travel and go visit their loved ones. Personally, I'm still hunkering down because there are immunocompromised individuals on my side and my partner's side of the family. But I do get why people are taking the risk. The uncertainty around when the pandemic will finally end. Vaccines are here, and the first ones were delivered to high-risk individuals and frontline workers at the end of 2020, after the FDA approved both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. But the vast majority of folks probably won't get a vaccine until the middle of 2021. And that's going to be just the Western countries. If you live in South America or um, an African country, you probably won't see a vaccine until the end of 2021 or even 2022. So that means, at the very least, there's still four more months of hunkering down. And that can create a huge emotional and mental toll. But at the end of the day, expert advice and these dire warnings were not enough. Hello everyone, I'm Vaishnavi Kara, and this is the Necessary Symbiosis Podcast. Today, I explore what happened to listening to experts, why trust in science and scientists could be declining, and what scientists can do to fight back. Here's what I learned as I started writing my book. A 2019 Pew Research poll showed that those who have science knowledge have a higher confidence in science than than those who do not have science knowledge. And that makes sense. People don't have confidence in things they don't understand. But looking at the partisan breakdown is rather frightening. Just 43% of Democrats and just 23% of Republicans have a high confidence in science. Neither party has a majority percentage of high confidence, and that's kind of scary. But the partisan breakdown makes sense when you look at the COVID-19 coverage and how there were two Americas. There was one America that wears masks consistently, and there's another one that thinks that masks cause more harm than good. The first America is not that affected by misinformation because they're getting mostly scientific, mostly fact-based evidence and reporting. But the second America, that's really affected by the misinformation. The whole debate around hydroxychloroquine is a great example. When it was first suggested, Scientists were generally thinking that maybe it'll work, but there needs to be trials done in order to see if one, it is an effective uh, treatment for COVID-19, and two, it doesn't cause any really bad side effects. Some news organizations provided nuanced uh, scientific reporting, and they brought on reputable scientists to help the public understand how the process of science works. Other news organizations, and I'm not going to name them, but you know which ones I'm talking about. They started to hype up hydroxychloroquine as a, quote, cure-all for COVID-19. And since there's a, quote, cure-all treatment, everyone can go back to doing what they did before and essentially ignore the pandemic. So when the evidence started to come in that hydroxychloroquine may not be as good as we had hoped, 
the news organizations that hyped it up suddenly ignored hydroxychloroquine, pretending as if it never existed. But the damage was already done. Trust in the scientific process is torn apart every time this kind of misinformation spreads. And this misinformation is so widespread that in December 2020, months after hydroxychloroquine was shown to be ineffective as a treatment for COVID-19, there were hearings in the Senate on hydroxychloroquine as a COVID-19 treatment. And you can blame Senator Ron Johnson, the Republican senator from Wisconsin, for holding a, quote, alternative treatments hearing in the Homeland Security Committee touting anti-vax and pseudoscientific uh, treatments. As one of the most ardent supporters of Trump in the Senate, Senator Johnson has criticized public health officials for not looking, quote, hard enough into hydroxychloroquine as a cure for COVID-19, even though the science shows that it's not that effective. And yeah, that really happened. Eight months after the first wave of the pandemic in the U.S., and at least four months after hydroxychloroquine was initially found to be not helpful. I repeat, hydroxychloroquine was found to be not helpful as a cure or a treatment for COVID-19. In fact, one study showed that it may be harmful and cause neurological disorders. Now, I do get the confusion because of the conflicting headlines. But here's something I cannot stress enough. That's part of the normal scientific process. In the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, all of these conflicting headlines were plastered all over the news. Remember them? And that's because scientists and regular folk were learning about the virus at the same time, in real time. No one knew what was going on. And as the normal scientific process played out, the public got a front row seat to it. But when the public doesn't get it, then that's how you get swaths of people refusing to wear masks because of early warnings not to. But early on in the U.S., in the response to COVID-19, the lack of masks for healthcare workers meant that those workers were prioritized over the general public. And that's why the U.S. government initially told the public not to wear masks. But as more research came out and the production of masks increased, including the disposable and cloth ones we see today, then the government changed the recommendation. So people that engage in a large amount of data know that the data itself that they use and see every day is just numbers. Anyone who's made a graph with a bunch of different points know that how you represent the data on that graph may be just as important. Because that graph, that visual, helps people interpret the data. For those of you that grew up watching PBS Kids like I did, uh, and the show uh, Cyber Chase in particular, know exactly what I'm talking about. Remember that episode about the cyberary? How the graphs can skew the interpretation of the data if important aspects like the legend or the axes are not labeled. Yeah, so that's important in general, but even more so during a pandemic. But on top of all that, if there's an outside influence that can affect the interpretation, and when that kind of influence comes from the highest office in the U.S., that is a weaponization of science at the highest level. And that includes the Senate. Senator Johnson refuses to listen to science for some odd reason. When misinformation spreads to the highest levels of the federal government, it can be quite frustrating. Dr. Ashish Jha from the Harvard University um, Public Health School, I believe, was at that hearing in December 2020. 
trying his very best to show that hydroxychloroquine is not helpful. But Senator Johnson would not listen to a well-respected public health official because those facts were not squaring up with what he believes. Senator Johnson even criticized Dr. Ja to his face, saying that the, quote, disinformation, scaremongering, and the prescription logjam has been created by bureaucrats. His words, not mine. Um, excuse me, what? <laughs> How is speaking the truth, quote, scaremongering, when the real scaremongering is happening because anti-science politicians like Senator Johnson are too cowardly to admit that they're wrong? That's the real disinformation. When people in power spread fake science and tout anti-vax propaganda, that has real-life consequences. That's why more Republicans do not take the pandemic and the mitigation efforts seriously, as shown in public polling. Because the leaders on their party are assailing public health officials and making up horse manure for their own political gain. Honestly, sometimes I feel like there are politicians out there that simply do not care if you or your loved one dies, as long as they get reelected. I mean, how else could you explain the inability to pass a second, second stimulus package that provides funding for states to distribute the vaccine, get more testing done, and get more personal prote protective equipment for months? For months, they were just sitting on their butts. This lack of understanding or empathy or just plain human decency is exactly why I believe that scientists need to be in those seats of power. Sometimes if people in power don't listen, then we gotta become those people in power. Because when anyone can Google anything and when anyone can write anything that is quote, scientific enough online, then misinformation and disinformation can spread. And certain publications and platforms make it so much easier to spread that kind of propaganda. Take, for example, the far-right publications like Breitbart and The Daily Caller. They are clear violators of science misinformation and misrepresentation and spread all kinds of misinformation and disinformation, like how hydroxychloroquine is a, quote, cure for COVID-19. Reminder, it is not. Other more reputable journals are just as susceptible to misreporting on science as well, with the use of clickbait headlines. Essentially, clickbait is when the headlines are written to either make us click on the link or share the link without reading the entire article, hence clickbait. And in an era when everything is shared and retweeted, people may not only may only read the headline and not click on the link to determine for themselves that that information is true or not. I'll talk about this particular phenomenon in a future episode of this podcast in a lot more detail. That waste of taxpayer money, quote, hearing, is a perfect example of what I mean. Facts are important, but I don't think facts are, alone are enough, clearly, as we saw in the hearing. Facts alone don't speak for themselves, and sometimes they're twisted in order to suit the purposes of certain groups of people like those who are against vac vaccines, anti-vaxxers. And I think science and scientists in general need to become more adept at advocating and not just stating the facts. I'm not saying Dr. Ja was not adept. He was trying his very hardest. I listened to the entire hearing itself. Um, but we're trying to play catch up and we need to learn how to be better at advocating. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there aren't really eloquent orators out there who are also scientists 
or that there aren't scientists disseminating their information and their science to broader audiences. I mean, there are. Just look at Bill Nye, Raven the Science Maven, and many others look using social media and non-traditional platforms to engage with a broader audience. So I grew up watching Bill Nye and his show in elementary school, and this is probably going to date me for some of the younger listeners out there, but I actually looked forward to it when my teacher would wheel in that big TV and pop in the VHS tape or a DVD. Bill Nye made science fun and accessible for me, and now he's taken, up, taken over another platform, TikTok. One of his um, last posts in 2020 was explaining exactly why masks help prevent the spread of respiratory illnesses. Essentially, the less spit you eject into the atmosphere, the less droplets viruses can take a quick joyride on until another person breathes in that spit. So that's how masks prevent the spread. If your spit doesn't travel, viruses cannot travel as far unless people are infected by your spit. Raven Baxter, Raven the Science Maven, is another great example of a great science communicator. She recently converted Megan Thee Stallion's song, Body, into a song about immunology called Antibody. and I can't wait for the full version. But it became viral in its own right, and even Megan the Stallion praised it. But despite all of these videos on outreach, I think there's a sizable portion of the scientific community that's comfortable to stay in the whole academia bubble and only engage with other scientists. And I think that could be detrimental to science as a whole in the long run. So what do I mean by that? Well, think of it this way. There's a super elite club likes to network and party every few months. The in-group helps each other get jobs, promotions, and find new opportunities to be successful, but they ignore everyone else in the out-group. So what happens over time? They lose out on new ideas and perspectives. They lose out on diversity. They lose out on progress and innovation. And when that elite group is science, whose very existence is based on innovation and progress, that club can eventually fade away into nothing. So if scientists don't engage with a broader audience and bring in new voices and perspectives as junior scientists, the very essence that makes science science will fade away. That's why scientists need to engage with non-scientists. And that's why scientists need to become their own advocates. How do they do that? Well, I'll give you an example from my own life. My younger brother is a special needs individual. He was four months old when he was first diagnosed with epilepsy. Seizures used to be really bad. Initially, it was something like 50 short ones a day, and then it went down to 20, then to 10. I just remember my parents timing how long his seizures were and calling the doctor if they were longer than a minute or a minute and a half. I also remember how his seizures would basically reset his brain. A lot of the things he had learned up until that seizure would be gone, almost as if his brain went back to its manufacturing default settings. Of course, as a kid, I really didn't know much about what was going on. But here's the thing. 
neither did my parents. You see, mental illnesses and disorders aren't commonly talked about in India, especially when my parents were growing up. So they thought that, like with most other diseases out there, your brother's epilepsy could be cured with medicine. Eventually it can be, but as of right now, and when, my, when we were growing up, there was no cure. It was just managing the symptoms. My parents realized that by embarking on a journey where they learned as much as they could about his condition, they talked to his doctors, they listened to experts, and used evidence-based logic to figure out what they could do to make his life better in the long run. These doctors talked to non-doctors, my parents, and helped them understand and guided them. By, the time, by taking the time to teach my parents about epilepsy and mental disorders, the doctors ensured their own brother would get the best care in the long run. As he got older, other mental disorders made themselves known, like ADHD, bipolar disorder, and autism spectrum disorder. And now, my parents have become his advocates. Whether that meant uh, fighting the school district to let him go to a special needs school outside of the district and having the district pay for it, or getting a bus to take him back and forth and having the district pay for it, or fighting insurance companies, they did it all. I saw how my parents took the time to learn about everything. The healthcare system in New Jersey where we grew up was especially difficult to navigate. New Jersey has one of the most complex healthcare landscapes in the country, and getting disability services can be difficult, after, especially after um, what former Governor Chris Christie did in privatizing some parts of the state's Department of Children and Families. But my parents figured it out. Unfortunately, not every child is as lucky to have such involved and curious parents. So that's why I decided to pursue a minor in political science in addition to my chemical engineering major as a Rutgers undergraduate student. I wanted to initially learn more about the complexity of the healthcare policy in the US. And I took classes that I believed would help me understand how politics can affect science policy. And although I've decided to pursue my scientific side by joining a chemical engineering PhD program at Northeastern University, continue to learn as much as I can on science policy. I even joined the uh, Northeastern Graduate Science Policy Group eBoard to help students at Northeastern become better science communicators. And more recently, I joined the uh, College of Engineering Communication Lab to continue to help Northeastern students become better science communicators. So this kind of local and community outreach is just one area where the scientific community as a whole can help disseminate science to non-scientists. I'm not just saying go and get young kids in middle and high schools interested in science. That's really cool and great and all, and it's definitely needed, but I don't think that's enough. We need to ensure that the kids' parents are pro-science, and that means finding ways to hold local town halls and Zoom calls and speaking to folks one-on-one, -on -one, then do it. I mean, there are Zoom of scientists sessions for kids so to me it doesn't seem all that unreasonable to set up similar zoom scientist sessions for adults as well and maybe scientists could take a page out of a, the politician's book and campaign on increasing science passion in the local communities but that could be difficult if you really think about it science and scientific journals are typically written and communicated in english Now that can be difficult if you think about it. 
science and scientific journals are typically written and communicated in English. So translating that work to other languages to reach non-English speakers in your community is an extra obstacle. But that doesn't make it less of a priority. In fact, I think it makes it an even bigger priority because if scientists and scientific journals can reach those folks, the future of the scientific community will be far more diverse. And diversity is a good thing. Another obstacle, I think, is the apparent emphasis on accuracy and precision. Scientists and science journals should continue to push each other to not only communicate the research in a scientific setting, but also a layperson setting. Scientists should help the public understand, even if it's not a completely accurate or precise explanation that they use. And it's okay if scientists don't use precise or accurate language in their explanations especially if the audience are non-scientists, like policymakers. Because advocating for those who don't have a voice, like special needs kids, is how we can improve their quality of life. Now that road can be long, the road can be difficult, and the road can be frustrating, but it's critical. Scientific advocacy is not just beneficial for special needs kids. It can benefit society as a whole in a range of topics from climate change and national disaster recovery to pandemics. And isn't that the point of science? To help get society closer to the truth so we can all live better lives? To me, that's the ideal. I know there have been issues in the past, but that's the ideal that scientists, myself included, should strive towards. And advocacy is just another avenue. If you're a scientist, how can you get involved in science advocacy? Well, you can look into 314 Action, or the Union of Concerned Scientists, or even AAAS. There's even the March for Science, um, which has been working hard on bringing scientists and non-scientists together to achieve their goals in a more scientific, for a more scientifically literate society. My friend and um, Rutgers University alum, Ingrid, who's now a graduate student at NYU, I believe, um, is extremely involved in this. Now, even if we do become more involved in science advocacy, there will be people that tell scientists to quote, stay in their lane. And to me, that's just a pathetic argument. Scientists that are political are in their lanes. They're human beings, they're taxpayers, they're both American citizens or green card holders or even immigrants, they're people. But just because I happen to be a first-generation immigrant, though I grew up in the U.S., a woman of color, and a scientist, I cannot stay out of politics. My very existence in this country is political. Every aspect of my life, personal and professional, is determined by the power struggles in Washington, D.C. and any state capital. So I think scientists shouldn't remain apolitical and stay on the sidelines. Scientists should actually become political in order to ensure that their hard work is represented properly in society, that it helps society pr progress towards justice, equality, and equity. It's time for us scientists to speak up, speak out, and run for office. We're forced to reckon with, and now more than ever, society needs us to use our power and credibility by being political. As my mom always says, be the squeaky wheel. I'm Vaishnavi Kaur, and you've been listening to the Necessary Symbiosis Podcast.